All right, so we're into the topic of worship, and uh, can anyone tell us uh, what our worship pillar is? Okay, unashamed adoration. What do we mean by a pillar, by the way? Okay, but what are what are they? Don't I'm not asking for them all. But what what do we? Why do we call it a pillar? It's like a foundation. Yeah, so it's it's one of the four things that we stress and emphasize. So unashamed adoration, and the long form is what. Okay, lifting high the name of Jesus in worship. And the key text that we uh, always have beside our worship pillar is John 4.24, which is God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, so um, let me just say this. We need to learn to worship. It's interesting that this is often not taught. We know we've got to learn the Bible, we know we've got to learn how to pray because Jesus said, I'm going to teach you how to pray. That's why I gave the Lord's Prayer. We're always interested in learning how to do evangelism. How do I share my faith? What do I do? Not a lot of, I'm not sure if I've really ever had too many people, more than a handful, come up and say, I want to learn how to worship. You ever thought about that? It's like, do we just assume we're awesome at it from day one? But the reality is, when we come out of a non-worshipful life, the life of an unbeliever, it's not like we just know how to worship God. We have a relationship. We have to learn to worship. So I want to just kind of uh, challenge each of us. I'm going to include myself in this challenge. To commit ourselves to being lifelong learners, we need to learn and continue to learn how to worship God and never get to a point where we're like, I know how to do it all. What happens if we get to a point as a church or individuals where we're like, hey, we, we got her locked down. We know how to worship. What happens? There's no growth, pride. What do we tend to focus in on? Form. Liturgy, style. How many of you grew up in church, some church of some sort? Just throw your hand up. Probably, okay, how many of you didn't grow up in church? One, two, three. Okay, so most of us grew up in church, and chances are, the forms we learned were more or less the same week in, week out. Now, that's maybe not such a big deal, but it becomes a bigger deal when it's year in, year out, decade in, decade out, century in, century out. That's a bigger problem. So obviously we're not going to, we're not even creative enough to come up with totally new forms every week. But uh, if a church kind of locks itself down, this is the way we do it, this is what worship looks like, Just let's just stay that way, a lot of things happen. We are focusing on form, not function. We, we can get stale, and we can communicate to people that this is the only way to do it. We start to think this is the only way to do it. And uh, it's actually kind of neat. I would even encourage you to do this as a you know, member of Harvest, is once in a while go to a different kind of church. And it'll kind of help you to see things differently. Hopefully you come back more appreciative. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hopefully you come back more appreciative. But uh, you can also learn from other churches. Um, 
be, be prepared to learn from good examples and bad examples. So you can learn from both. You can learn from good and bad. So just kind of keep your antennas up and uh, keep learning. Now let me just make one more preliminary comment. Worship is really important because it is the main act of eternity. Look at Revelation. It's really the only verb in eternity. Obviously, there's expressions of worship, singing and bowing down. We're going to talk about those. But it doesn't tell us anything else. If there's other things that are part of eternity, I don't know what they are. But I do know that worship is the main act of eternity. And somehow it's going to be so awesome that you'll do it forever without yawning, without getting bored. That's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that. So if it's the main act of eternity, why would we not want to get into that groove now. Some people say this is like the practice for it. Not really. This is, it's not, the worship we do now will pale in comparison to eternity, but we are worshiping God now. It's not just practice for what's to come. We are actually worshiping the Lord. So we're going to look at, okay, if you take notes, uh, let me give you the four headings we're going to look at tonight. You can just write these down, and then you can kind of take notes accordingly. So, section number one, we're going to talk about forms and expressions of worship. Forms and expressions of worship. Secondly, we're going to talk about places or times of worship. Third, we're going to talk about prerequisites to worship. Although, some of the prerequisites will naturally, will will be obvious under the first heading. And then the fourth heading I have is warnings for worship. And again, some of those will come up in the earth. There's a lot of overlap. And just to, just to get you thinking about this, there's going to be two things I want you to accomplish over the next couple weeks. So this week and next. Hopefully we'll get to the first one tonight. If not, we can do it next week. But I, I would like for you to write a definition of worship. So be thinking about the words you're going to use. What is worship? Just kind of think about it. You're going to write a definition. And the second thing I would like you to do is, you know, in a few sentences or bullet points, I don't care what form you use, I want you to write out, first of all, I want you to be reflecting on this, or it's going to be pointless. But I want you to write out how you want to grow as a worshiper. Okay, so I want, I want you to write out how you want to grow as a worshiper. And that's going to require you to think about your attitude and your expression. So you're not allowed to just go with the externals and you're not allowed just to go with the internals. So I want you to be thinking about what are, what are some maybe some changes of attitude I have to have towards worship and what are some changes of expression or what are some attitudes that I have that are right on the money. I'm so thankful the Lord has taught me this and what are some expressions that are right on the money. I'm so thankful that the Lord has taught me this. So I want you to define it, and then I want you to do some self-evaluation because I want this to be helpful for you so you can move forward as a worshiper. Or maybe just affirm that what you're doing and thinking right now is, is awesome, right? So it's not always that we need to be challenged to change. Sometimes we just need to be affirmed that we're doing the right thing. All right, you guys prepared for that? You good with that? Anybody want to walk out? No? Okay. 
So we got a ton of scripture to look at, so you need to get your Bible opened up and your fingers. Let's do a little finger warm-up exercise because you're going to be flipping a lot. Okay. All right, so let's talk about forms and expressions. These are in no particular order. We're going to go back to the Old Testament, to Genesis 24, 26. Genesis 24, 26. As I've looked at, well, let's read it first of all. 24, 26, what does it say? Someone can read it out loud. I'll read some, but you can probably read some too. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. All right. Now look down at verse 48. What does it say? Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Okay. We don't have time to look at all of the contexts, but I, I've selected these passages to draw out a particular truth. Let's go to Exodus 12, 27. I'm just giving you three for this heading, but there's actually several more that, are, that will come up. So Exodus 12, 27. I'll, I'll do this one. You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people, what does it say? Uh, Bowed their heads and worshipped. Okay, we've got to write this one down. So we're under expressions. What's the common expression in all three of these verses? So one of the expressions in scripture that's part of worship is bowing. Now, what I don't want us to do, I want you to hear this really clear, okay? If you're, if you're not like totally focused in right now, I just need you to give me a minute where you're totally focused in. When we go through these expressions, what we don't want to conclude is that every one of these expressions is mandated and required, and if I do it, I'm worshiping. We want to focus on the heart. However, having said that, the heart gives expression to itself in the body. So this is a biblical form of worship, bowing. Now think about bowing. So if, I'm, if God's in front of me and I'm bowing down, what am I, what am I acknowledging? You're I'm putting myself under. We're going to look at um, a passage later where it says bow at his footstool. So one of the expressions of worship is bowing, and the reason for it is to acknowledge several things. Holiness comes up in some of the texts, but we'll just talk about kingship. So bowing in worship, bowing our heads, bowing our bodies. So we can, we can do this. This is totally acceptable, an acceptable posture, an acceptable form. Do you remember um, way back in the day, those of you that are at least my age, when 
we would sometimes get on our knees and bow our heads at the side of our beds and we prayed at night. Remember that? I don't know if we even teach that anymore. But it's a biblical posture, just bowing before the Lord. If you're not in the habit of doing that and you want to add some creativity to your worship expression, I'd encourage you to consider it. Right? So bowing is a biblical expression of worship. Again, they need to be understood, not just used as some sort of keys to opening your life to worship. All right, now this is the next series of scriptures we're going to look at show us a similar but slightly different nuanced expression. And what we're going to do here, I have five passages, so instead of a, a four passages, I'm just going to kind of assign them. So you're going to go with um, Joshua 5.14. And um, Sam, you could do Matthew 22.11. Uh, Kenny, I'll have you do 1 Corinthians 14.25. And Otto, you can do Revelation 5.14. All right, nice and loud. Verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. I wonder if I gave you the right passage now. I wonder if I got the right one here. Uh, it doesn't seem to be following along. Uh, it's a good verse, though. Yeah. Very good, yeah. <laughs> so, keep keep All right. If I wrote them down wrong and I got like a hundred here, I probably did. We'll just we'll just skip it. Okay. Go to the next one. First Corinthians fourteen twenty-five. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. All right. And Revelation. All right, so here we have Old Testament, New Testament, and heaven. That's really all there is. <laughs> Old Testament, New Testament, heaven. In each of these contexts, someone is falling on their face down before the Lord. Should we interpret this as an act of shame? No. What should we interpret it as? When you fall... Okay, you're bowing, you might still be looking up, but now you're on your face before the Lord. And it's an old, old covenant expression. It's given expression in the new covenant. It, we look into the John's vision of heaven, what it's going to be like in the future, and it's still happening there. So it's not limited to some culture or some particular dispensation. What does it communicate when we, the idea of us falling on our faces before the Lord? Nancy? I think you're cranking it up a notch. It's, you're here, and then all of a sudden, like, wow. Mm. Away you go. Yeah. You're the only one. Okay, good. Yeah. Someone else, I think, in this. Did you have your hand up, Rich? Okay. Just total. Okay, go ahead, Jordan. You're just kind of awestruck. Mm. Awestruck, abject humility before the Lord. There's no, there's no room for pride 
in worship. There's no room for self. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for showiness. I mean, showing off in the schoolyard, that's one thing. Showing off in worship, that's like total blasphemy. Drawing attention to self and not to the Lord. So it's just a, re- a really good reminder of what worship is. And uh, I'm sure many of you have had times in your life where you're just broken because of your own sin. You're just humble before the Lord. And you've done something like this. You're just in your bedroom on your face or crying out to the Lord in repentance or just asking him to do something that is seemingly unattainable. So that's another cool one. We have bowing of heads. We have uh, faces uh, uh, kind of bowed before the Lord. Okay, we're going to go to Second Chronicles 7 and uh, verse 3. So one of, the thi- one of the expressions here we've already covered, but there's an additional one that helps us to understand the nature of worship. So 2 Chronicles 7.3. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay. So there's actually three expressions here. The first one is bowing, so we need to include that in our worship. What's the second one? Okay, thanksgiving. Now you can actually, by the way, when you, start to, when you start to look at these scriptures, it helps you to see that the things we do in our worship are actually biblical. They're not traditional, they're not just because that's the way we've been taught to do it. We give thanks to the Lord. What's the third one? Okay, but worship's kind of the overarching. So just read the last part. What does it say? Uh, proclaiming. Okay, proclaiming. So proclamation. <laughs> Verbal, verbals are part of worship. We're going to talk later about proclamation of the word in worship. Proclamation of the word is not, an, it's not separate from worship. It is worship. <laughs> I know it's hard to, sometimes our language isn't very good. So we're like, okay, this is worship. What do we mean by that? Music. Now it's the offering, as if that's not worship. Now it's the sermon, as if that's not worship. Now it's fellowship, as if that's something else. It's all worship. We're going to see many examples of this in Scripture tonight. Not everything we do is worship, but these things are worship. So we have Thanksgiving. We've added Thanksgiving proclamation to our List. Okay, go, go to Exodus 26, verse 10. By the way, like 99.9% of the passages will have the word worship in them. I could give you many other passages where in the context they're worshiping, but the word may not be used. We're just going to focus on the ones that are like blatantly obvious. So we have uh, Exodus 26, verse 10. 
Okay, just a second here. Take 50 loops and the edge. No, I'm looking for I'm looking for the offering of first fruits. So. Uh, somebody Google it, like offering first fruits. Yeah, lifeline. Yeah. Sorry. Mm, I think it's I think it's Exodus, but I mean there may be one. You had Leviticus. I knew this would happen. Twenty-three nineteen. It has worship in it. Okay, with Apollo, this will happen again tonight because I was typing quick. So, uh, there's an Exodus passage. What is the Deuteronomy 26.10? Okay, 26, is that 2610? Okay. Okay, yes. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, so yeah, Deuteronomy 2610. Behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground. So that's where we get the first fruits. The harvest is ripe. I got 400 apples on my trees. The first 40 that ripen, I'm giving them to the work of the Lord. That's the idea there. The first fruit, first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given to me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So this is this ancient idea of giving to the Lord something that we have in our possession as an act of worship. So obviously one of the things we give is money. We, we like to talk around here about our time, talents, and treasures, the three T's. Just kind of catchy language. It helps you remember. Uh, time, time, talents, and treasures. We give those to the Lord. And that is, in fact, not just, some, not just a joyful obligation. It is that. But it's, it's, a, it's an act of worship. So think about your giving of money, time, treasure as an act of worship. Not just something you're expected to do to fit in around here or to help pay the bills. It's an act of worship. And it, by the way, it's a whole lot more fun if uh, you view it that way. But if you view it as a duty, or an, expense. an expense, a bill, like obviously it's kind of like that because it's with money, you're taking it out of your bank account, giving it. But it's not just some invoice you're paying, it's an act of worship. It represents something that you value, and you're giving it because you've acknowledged it's from the Lord. Opportunity, not obligation. Okay, good. Yeah. Opportunity, not obligation. Good. All right. So, and I, you know, I like to say the Lord talks about um, God loves a cheerful giver, but I like to say, because you could be carnal in that. You could say, well, then I'm only going to give what makes me cheerful. <laughs> no. You give cheerfully as unto the Lord. Nancy? And off the top as opposed to what's left over? Right. 
That's, the, that's always the idea. That's the first fruits idea. So you've got a lot of people. Now, we always give people a break who are, who are coming, who are just saved. They've already set their finances up in a way that's not biblical. And they're like, I want to start giving. Okay, well, start to reorganize your finances, your schedule, your time to get yourself there. But someone that's been walking with the Lord for years and years and years and years, if, they're still not, if they still don't have this one down, it's because they don't want to, period. It's just not a priority. There's really no other reason for it. So you, uh, some people just haven't been taught this, right? Like I wasn't taught this. I kind of learned it as a young, young adult, but it just never came up in our home. So sometimes people just don't know. But it is an act of worship as uh, unto the Lord. Okay, so uh, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. Hopefully, chapter 1, verse 3. Samuel, this is Samuel's father, who, I, I read that part of this passage, 1 Samuel 1, I read this passage at our prayer night, which was awesome. Those of you that didn't come missed out on one of life's choicest moments. Okay. If you're upset you weren't there, you should be, Jordan. Um, we all agreed we wanted to make everybody spiritually covetous who didn't come. Okay. So here we have, now this man used to go up year by year, so it was an annual thing, from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. So notice here he's worshiping and he's sacrificing. So this is just one of them. We could talk, we could look at whole chapters of the Bible that talk about worship. So this, the talk about the sacrificial system. So he's giving sacrifices. What we sometimes don't think about is the value of the sacrifice. We're like, oh, it's a blood sacrifice. We like to do our studies in the seven different kinds of sacrifices, the grain sacrifice, the wave offering, the, the blood But, okay, let's not do that. Let's just think about the value of it. So they didn't have legal tender like we do. They didn't have obviously retirement plans or RSPs or all that kind of stuff. They were largely nomadic, maybe not so much by Samuel's time, but their houses weren't quite as permanent as ours. And their wealth is in the form of what? Animals, equipment, Pardon me? Produce. Produce. Orchards. Like stuff you own. <clears throat> so if you make $100,000 a year, you're like, oh, how much do you make? $100,000 a year. That's how much money you have. But back then it'd be more like, well, how many goats do you have? Oh, I have 100,000 goats. Oh, that's pretty wealthy. I have five goats. Oh, you're below the poverty line, right? So <laughs> you're... Your equity is not measured in dollars like we do it today. How many dollars do you make a year? It's like, how much stuff do you have? So when you sever off your choice ram that you've been using for breeding purposes and you sacrifice it to the Lord, that's going to cost you some of this, right? But it was an act of worship. So the sacrificial system is an act of worship. And it's an act of worship because you're taking something, frankly, you need, you want, and you're giving it away. 
How do we know it was something that they wanted and not something that was just leftovers? Because <laughs> you weren't allowed to give blemished ones. You weren't allowed to give you know, the lame one with the tumors growing on it. I'm going to get rid of it anyway. <laughs> uh, you had to give the best of the best. And if you didn't, people would notice and you'd get in trouble. So let me tell you this. Human nature is we hoard. There's a security kind of built into having stuff. And we have no problem giving away our junk. Got an extra bed. You want it? Really what I mean is please take it off my hands. <laughs> Pull all the stuff out of the attic, put it out on the lawn, dicker with someone for $2 or $2.25 at a garage sale. Total waste of time, by the way. Yeah. I mean, garage sales can be fun, but they're usually not. Because they are expressions of people's carnality. I mean, think about it. What's minimum wage today? What is it? Eleven twenty-five, and you go to a garage. You're like, "Hey, will you take three bucks for that? Mm, how about three twenty-five? Uh, like, really? You you don't you care about this stuff so little that it's been sitting in a box in your fruit cellar? You really want to just get rid of it, but in the moment, that twenty-five cents makes all the difference. <laughs> really? So." I know. Animals. Yeah. Uh, you could have them for free. Take so oh, I know. Said, okay, let's charge a dime. Yeah, I've told you that. Yeah, told you stories before. I put stuff on Kijiji for free. Nobody wants it. I throw a price tag on it and you get calls, right? But um, anyway, that's a little bunny trail. Sacrifices, giving of your stuff, and sac literal blood sacrifices and whatnot are, were part of worship. Now we're going to get into some more. I don't want to call them spiritual, but less tangible forms of worship. So we're going to go to 1 Chronicles 16, 29. So I want some of you to look that one up. And somebody else needs to look up Nehemiah 9, 6. So 1 Chronicles 16, 29. And Nehemiah 9, 6. Okay. Go ahead if you have it. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come before him, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Mm. Nehemiah nine six. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. Okay, can you do the next verse? Sure. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Okay. So we got offerings, sacrifices. What do we learn about worship from those passages? Yeah, we acknowledge that he's holy. But there's a pretty strong word used in First Chronicles that maybe goes a little beyond acknowledging. Ascribe. Ascribe. Let's just think about this word for a minute. 
What's the difference between acknowledging and ascribing? It's deserving. Well, it flows from an understanding that God is deserving. But when you ascribe holiness, okay, giving, it's, it's an interesting word, isn't it? We're ascribing it. We're not saying, hey, we have it and you don't have it. We're going to give it to you. We're not just saying, oh, we, we're thinking about it. We're acknowledge, acknowledge, knowledge. I'm acknowledging it. I'm thinking this about you, the Lord. It's, a, it's kind of an act of the soul where you're acknowledging, declaring, pointing toward the Lord that he's something that you frankly aren't. And in that sense, you're honoring him. So we're, when we ascribe to the Lord, we don't want to think about it this way. Uh, Lord, you don't have glory. I'm going to give you some. But there's a holy, humble acknowledgement of God's glory. We're ascribing glory. We're ascribing our offering. We're, we have the idea of an approach there. And the beauty of his holiness, we're approaching the Lord. We're acknowledging that God is holy. This is part of worship. And you've probably heard us say around here that um, in our corporate worship, we want, as the worship leaders, I'm a worship leader, the musicians are worship leaders, the people giving announcements know they're worship leaders, we're all worship leaders that are up front leading the people of God. We want to get you to the point in worship where you are ascribing worth to the Lord. Now, you come in off the street, you've parked the car, you've driven to church, got up in the morning, you know, you did all your stuff, you get here, you're distracted, you've said hi to people, most of you are late, okay, especially Nancy, um, and we're not necessarily particularly focused. So there's, there's an opportunity to call you to worship. So you notice earlier on in the worship set, you guys, are you guys familiar with our five-step approach? Is anyone not familiar with our five-step approach in worship? Throw up your hand or I'm not going to go. Okay, Carmine, not you're not. Okay, let me just review this real quick. So when we organize a worship service, this is one way of organizing a worship service. Favorites. We pick our favorites, right? Grew up in churches, there's... It's just you pick your favorites, you pick your favorites, whoever's leading they have their favorites. It's kind of lame. The second is to pick songs based on a theme. Okay, that's fine. The problem with a the thematic approach, okay, what are you preaching on? I'm preaching on giving. Okay, we're going to find a bunch of songs that have the word give in it. The problem with preaching on a theme is you may never take your people to the point where they're actually talking to God and giving him honor and ascribing worth to him. So what we do is we have a little different philosophy. Like We, we play with this a little bit. We're not like hard and fast on it, but generally speaking, this is how it's going to go. There's going to be, before the word of God is preached, uh, change this.
And then, uh, sorry? One, two, three, four. Yeah, this is number three. Okay. So these are what we call gathering songs. So the worship leaders have been instructed to pick songs closer to the beginning of the worship order that are calling people to worship. Come, let us worship. Come, let us worship. I can bring a list next week of songs that fall into that category. But the songs are generally, hey, let's go worship the Lord, right? Come on up. It's patterned after the Ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T, Psalms of the Old Testament. The Ascent Psalms are ones that were sung as you went up to the Holy Hill of Jerusalem to worship. They're, they're kind of, frankly, they're kind of horizontal. You're talking to each other. You're worshiping, right? I'll go back to two and four in a minute. The third one is what we call a testimony. So you'll notice, sometimes we will go from a one to three to a five, depending on how many songs we can fit in. But let's say we have five songs or five elements. So the prayer could be included in one of these, communion could be one of these, a reading could be one of these, a video could be one of these, but we'll use music as an example. A testimonial song is where, if you listen to the, the way the song's written, we are testifying to each other about the goodness of God, the glory of God, the love of God. We use words like we, we have, encountered the Lord. There's songs that are written in such a way they're really testimonial. But where we ultimately want to get people is to a point of pure ascription. And pure ascription songs are songs that don't have the word I or me or we in them. They're all focused on the Lord. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It just we want to get you to a point where you're just focused up on the Lord. You're not thinking about other people. It's all on the Lord. So what we do with twos and threes is these are hybrids. So a two is a combination of a one and three. A four is a combination of a three and five. The word of God is preached, and then there's like a response coming out of that. Now, the idea is, is by the time you hear the word of God proclaimed, you don't want to be thinking about the drive-in anymore about what's been going on in your week. You want to just be, it's like you're in the throne room of the Lord and you're worshiping the Lord. I can tell you this, the hardest songs to find in old and modern music are number fives because we always want to put ourselves in the songs. Isn't that interesting? We always want to be in the song. But the songs, and it's appropriate at times to be in the song because there's psalms that are testimonial. But the songs that just take our eyes off of self and others and church and focus on the Lord, they're, they're hard to find. But fortunately, good theologically-minded worship leaders are increasingly understanding this, and they're writing them. So that's our worship philosophy. It's very simple. But that's the way we like to organize things. And therefore... And you can tell people, if people are asking you from other churches, what makes your church distinct, please don't say, please don't talk about our style. Oh, we have modern worship. It's rocky. It's loud. That's not where I want you. You might get there eventually, if they want to talk about style. But that's not a good place to start. I want you to communicate to other people and to new people that our worship services are theologically driven. 
They're not thematically driven. They're not driven by our little favorites here at Harvest Windsor, our little roster of favorite songs. They're driven by a theological notion that God is supreme. And I just think this is really cool and it's refreshing and it's something we've been growing our worship leaders uh, into. So we use the word ascription in our description of number fives. And it's the idea that flows from passages like this where we're ascribing it all to the Lord. And I'll say this too. Once you start, once you, if you've been here for a while and you're used to worshiping that way, you will notice if you go to other churches that it's pretty weird that that's not happening. It'll be evident to you if, you're, if you pay attention, unless you're like a snoozer sleeping through the worship service. But if you pay attention to the songs that are selected, most times they pick them on themes or favorites. And I mean, obviously God can work in those kinds of environments because that's how I grew up. But it's not, it's not really vertical in its orientation. So this is something that like Harvest Churches hold dearly to, and I've really appreciated that emphasis myself as we've uh, become part of the Harvest Movement. All right, so let's look at some more expression. We're going to go to 2 Chronicles 29. Um. Just one more thought. If you ever talk to people who want to have a debate with you about old, old style, like hymns versus newer music, first thing you should probably say is you're, you're wanting to have a conversation about a battle that was fought and won 20 years ago. That's what I would say. I'd be sarcastic. But you may want to say, hey, you know what? You're kind of you're talking about something that, like you guys lost a long time ago, so I don't even know why we're talking about it. Okay, but... Um, if you're a little more pious and a little more theological and a little more humble, what you probably want to say is something like old music and new music, it's not about style. Old music and new music should be guided by the themes of Scripture. And what you'll notice is there's different eras where different parts of Scripture seem to affect, to a greater degree, the musical style of a particular generation. So when you go to hymns, most hymns sound more, more like epistles. They're, they're, they're dealing with doctrines or themes, or they're using the language of the epistles. And a lot of newer music sounds more like the Psalms. So... Some people think, well, it's better mu- the, the hymns are better music because they're more doctrinal. The, the problem with that is that the epistles are not the songs of the Bible. The psalms are, right? And the psalms are also equally inspired, but they accomplish something different. Because worship cannot be defined merely as teaching people a lot about systematic theology. Preaching should do that. But the purpose of worship, are we learning in worship? Yes. Are we reminding ourselves of things in worship? Yes. But primarily in worship, we are ascribing to the Lord and declaring to the Lord and, what, and to one another what we know about the Lord experientially. And my proof text for that is composed of 150 psalms in the Psalter. So can, 
can we study the Psalms and learn theology? Yes, but it's, it's a different genre. It's believing people, expressing to the Lord, a breath of emotions, declaring, uttering certain things to be true. That's worship. It's not just regurgitating and reminding each other of a full-formed systematic theology. I mean, I like systematic theology. I kind of studied it for a while. But, but I'm okay with the fact that that's something more for preaching. And worship has a slightly different notion to it. Like a musical worship I'm talking about has a slightly different notion to it. So you can't just say, well, I like hymns more because there's more theology. Who cares? The song, if, the, if the genre of Scripture and the purposes of Scripture can guide our worship, then our songs should sound more like psalms. Right? And the style of music you put to it is not really as important. So we're going to go to 2 Chronicles 29, 28. <coughs> All right, so uh, we have here the whole assembly worshipped. So that means everybody worshipped. That means people just didn't come and sit in the chair and watch as other people worshipped. Okay? You guys got the right verse? Okay. So the whole assembly worshipped. That means that people didn't come as spectators. And then it says, and the singers sang and the trumpeters sang sounded, so there's certain expressions given to worship by those that are skilled at it. So there's singing, there's trumpeters. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. So it obviously doesn't give us a full picture of what was going on. But everybody in some way is in on worship. There's music, there's trumpets, there's offerings. We already covered that one. But notice this is one of the early references in Scripture to musical instruments and music being part of worship. It's strange to me. Some historic groups of, of uh, the church are opposed to singing or musical instruments. and It's just kind of dumb because throughout Scripture in both Testaments, instrumentation and music is part of worship. What's the rationale? Well, I think it flows primarily from a notion that it's excessive or it's attention-seeking or it's exclusionary. Okay, well, deal with those problems, but don't throw biblical forms out in order to fix the problem. Fix whatever the problem is. Don't just discard the form. It's like saying, I've been to church 12 times. I've heard 11 bad sermons, so we're no longer allowing preaching in our church. Why don't we fix the bad preaching instead of throwing out preaching? So in the same way, why don't we fix bad music instead of throwing out music? Like why would we throw it out because it may not be done right or for the right reason? So it's kind of a... That's why I said at the beginning, it's, you can't just focus on the form because if you focus on the form and the form's not done right, you throw it out. You're, you're not thinking about the function there. So we have Second Chronicles 28. And then look at verse 30. And Hezekiah and the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. What are those words? Psalms. Psalms. 
So Asaph's mentioned as a writer of some of the Psalms, and David's writer as a writer of some of the Psalms. So they're singing Psalms. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshiped. So there's the bowing down again. So notice there's actually quite a bit in there. Kind of gives you a bit of a picture of what it might have looked like. Um, I wrote down singing, trumpets, burnt offerings, bowing. They sang praises. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. Let's go to uh, Nehemiah, a couple books forward, chapter 8, verse 6. You ever been to a church where someone's preaching, there's a person in the congregation that goes, Amen! Amen! Amen. Right? All right. You like that? Yep. You do, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I should have asked you that first. Okay. So Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen. We'll skip the next uh, phrase because that's very unbiblical. Um, Lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads. We're okay with that. Bow your heads for prayer. And worship the Lord. with their faces to the ground. So we got a whole bunch of stuff going on there. Some of it's a repeat of other passages. If you see it once in the Bible, okay, maybe you misunderstand the context. When you start seeing it over and over again, you're on pretty solid ground that it actually happened as you're reading it. So there's a number of different bodily expressions. So there's verbals, there's lifted hands, there's bowed faces, there's bowed heads. So here's... here's um, this will we'll kind of reinforce this. We'll drive this nail deep into the wood of the church. But let's just say this. So far, it would be pretty difficult to argue that bodily expressions are not appropriate in worship. It would be pretty difficult to argue that. doesn't mean there's certain ones that are prescribed or you're going to hell. But... If you come from a tradition where standing stick still is the only appropriate way to worship, you're, you're not really manifesting biblical forms, at least. I don't know what you're manifesting. Probably more like Puritan forms, but not biblical forms. That's because we're not taught, though, mm. and it's not, it hasn't been role modeled. Yeah. And, and so, you know, or we are taught otherwise. Yeah, so I remember... Today, today. I mean, I'm looking at the past. Yeah, so I, I remember... Some, no, I was way beyond this. I was like... It was like an eye-rolling moment, but... I had somebody... I don't even remember who it was, thankfully. Um, they said, we have to... We can't get rid of hymn books because if people aren't holding on to a hymn book, they'll raise their hands. <laughs> I raised the hymn book. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that would be obviously flowing from the notion that it's something we, we want to avoid. So we're actually being taught not to do it. There's a difference between not being taught to do it and being taught not to do it. Those are your false teachers, though? Well, I don't want to call them false teachers, because false. usually we reserve that for people that are playing around with the gospel. So we want to, we want to be a little... A little more charitable. But um, it's just not, it's, you're not giving people 
the opportunity to fully express themselves in worship as they were in the New Testament, the Old Testament, and as we shall see in heaven itself. Heaven itself, we already looked at one passage. There's bowing down. It's one. There's some other things going on in the Revelation texts too. So the idea is you may not want to do it now, but you're going to do it someday. And you, you will not have any shame or aversion to it at all, really at all. But I would say, too, that so much, of, so much of worship, and this applies to all false religions, but unfortunately applies to Christianity as well, is um, based on peer pressure. Now, we're totally fine with a theology that says that Christianity is an incarnational faith. How do we teach each other? We role model. So Christ incarnates truth. I incarnate truth. We incarnate truth to each other. We, we teach each other by our forms and our language and our words and our priorities and all that. We learn from each other by looking. We don't just look at scripture. We also look at other people. How are they putting this into practice? So it's an incarnational faith, but we've got to be careful that what is being incarnated to us is in fact biblical, because if it's not, it can reduce the opportunities we have to connect to the Lord. And the earlier you learn some of these things, the better off you are. I mean, it's hard to learn this stuff at 75 years old. But, um, you know, we're trying to... No, I wasn't looking at you. Dave. <laughs> no. So, Dave? So I just wanted to ask, um, some of the, I know you, the way that you describe the yeah. What would you say to someone who would say, well, all these forms are just descriptive of the people at that time, it's not prescripting it for us? Yeah, I, I would be okay with that. But I would go a step further and say, when we say something's descriptive, not prescriptive, what we mean is that God is not prescribing, in this context, a form. He's not prescribing it. Like if you don't do it, what if you're born without hands? Uh, that's not the idea, but it is, it is an appropriate bodily gesture modeled under the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, in the eschatological age. Therefore, we can't just sort of throw it out. Like, I would rather people not do it than do it for the wrong reasons. But at the same time, it's interesting, and I want to be careful with this. You know how we emphasize the heart, the heart, the heart. So get the heart right, and then the actions will follow. I'm not sure that's totally true. Sometimes the heart follows the actions. Um, someone may not want to, let's use giving as an example. Someone, we want people to give out of a proper heart, but the act of giving sometimes can soften the heart too. I may not want to say, I'm sorry, I'm resistant, but when I say, I'm sorry, it kind of frees my heart as well. So we don't want to be too, oh, it's just about the heart. Uh, even in salvation, you know, the salvation text of uh, Romans 10, we profess with our mouths. Why not just go with the heart? Why not just stay with the heart, stay with belief? There's something about using the body, because we're integrated beings, to, to give expression to what's going on in our mind and heart that sometimes makes it more concrete and freeing. And because it's something that other people see, 
You know, we talk about unashamed adoration. <clears throat> That's kind of two, there's, a, there's two dimensions to that. We want to be unashamed before God, but we also want to be unashamed before each other. Like, I, I care for you, but I shouldn't be driven by an excessive care for what you think with regard to my worship. But then we've got some balancing texts we'll look at, like 1 Corinthians 14, too, where there needs to be an orderliness to it. But orderliness doesn't mean that there has to be a prescribed order of service. Or a lot of people, they think orderly, they, they determine that by their cultural construct. So if I'm like British, Victorian, from Victorian era England, my understanding of orderly is everything's neat and tidy. That's not, the, the biblical notion is not that. So, yeah. Yeah, but part of the reason of the neat and tidy and orderly, I, I believe, was designed initially as to not draw attention to the individual. People used to dress the same way. Others used to act the same in, in different situations. So I, I, I think it was to, to, to allow the focus to be on worship of God as opposed to bringing attention to self. Like, I've been in churches where people, they dance and play the tambourine and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, like, where do you draw the line, truly? Mm -hmm. And just because, because people dance and play the tambourine, they're, they're, you would consider them more sincere in their worship because someone just stands still and bows mm -hmm. their head? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it, it doesn't, like, it doesn't wash. The, yeah. Again, just because something is new and different and because you raise your hands and make it look like you're, I don't, I don't know what it looks like you're doing, in no way does that have any reflection on the sincerity of your, uh, of your belief. Yeah. It can. So I agree with about 50% of what you said, but it's kind of like scattered in that whole sentence, like a little bit yes, a little no, a little yes, a little no. So it's, I got to kind of unpack that a little bit, um, and part of it will be unpacked just as we work through these scriptures. So the part I agree with, even though you didn't quite say this, is you can do a lot of things with your body, and I mean, heck, not even be saved. You could do a lot of things in a worship service and not even know the Lord, or know the Lord and be extremely carnal. So that we can all agree with. There's excesses. First Corinthians 14 demonstrates that. People are doing a bunch of stuff, drawing attention to herself. Paul's like, eh, we've got to put the brakes on. We've got to get some order into this. Right, so we, we need to acknowledge that. At the same time, we need to apply that same selfishness to a lack of expression. So we can apply it to expressions. An expression doesn't mean that you're necessarily truly worshiping. And a lack of expression doesn't mean you're focused in reverencing the Lord and in awe of him and before him, right? So you can just be stone still, and you're doing it because you think that's somehow reverential, but really it's because you're afraid. Well, yeah, right? but so, by the same token, at least you're not drawing or distracting the attention from the rest of the yeah. congregation. So, so then, this is why the scriptures, both Old Covenant and New Covenant, always have eldership, worship leaders, people in official positions of authority in the church, leading worship. Right? So they're, they're leading worship. So they, they got to you got to allow for the leaders of a service, who 
whoever they might be, pastors, musicians, choir leaders, to give direction to that and to kind of provide parameters for that. Um, but we have to be careful not to say that if someone's doing something visual or visible, that that is drawing attention. You may look over at them, but you could learn a lot from them just as much as maybe discern in your spirit that they're not doing it for the right reason. Yeah, and so, like, and so, I don't want to be interpreted that I'm arguing against it if you want to raise your hands or yeah. do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Like, but I just, like I personally detect a hint that people are going to be viewed as not as sincere in their faith if mm-hmm. indeed they aren't doing those sorts yeah. of things. And I think it's wrong. I yeah. think it's definitely wrong. Well, I think they could be. Right? But those that are doing it could be as well. So we, we can't just sort of throw, we, we can't throw all the accusations on those that are and not throw the same accusations on those that aren't. Sure. But here's, here's what we have in Scripture. Just to kind of push you a little bit, because this is what I want you to do, the exercise evaluating yourself. Because if you've never done this, you know, let's take Sam, you've been in church for a long time. If you've never done this, just be like, this is just so foreign, I don't even want to do it. But it may be that the Lord wants you to do it. And what you need to hear from the word of God is you have the freedom to do it. You have the freedom to do it. And we also are in a multicultural context. I think one of the reasons why some of this is changing in the modern church is because we have people coming in from other cultures that are kind of helping us along with this. Because most of you, let me just look around here quick. Are we like all white people here tonight? <laughs> I think we are. So, <laughs> transracial? <laughs> Who does? Oh, no, we okay. One Asian. Okay, so we got Europeans, one Asian, and one Frenchman. Okay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, sorry, you were like covering her up there. So, those of us from a European background, you don't even you don't know who your great great grandparents were. You didn't meet them, but there's family characteristics that are passed down generation to generation, and there's cultural nuances that are passed down generation to generation. And if you're in like an all white all European church in Europe, hundred years ago, those forms are pretty established, and they're more. You know, I'm, I'm going through a book right now on the whole history of England, and it's interesting how um, notions of chivalry and honor and all that shape culture and all these dress codes. If you're an apprentice, you dress a certain way. If you're a nobleman, you dress a certain way. All those kinds of notions continue to filter into the fabric of Western society, and we don't even know where they came from. And it's interesting how many of these notions affect even the way we express ourselves, the words we use, how English shapes our consciousness, how we use English to express our consciousness, all these cultural notions. But now we have people coming from Africa and Latin countries and Asian countries and on and on and on into a country like this, which in the last 150 years has been predominantly white Anglo-Saxon-esque and they're like, that's not the way we do it, but they're really sincere. And Here's what I find interesting. When 
white people from Canada, the US, England go on a mission trip to a country that's more exuberant and passionate in its worship expression, everybody thinks it's awesome. They just don't think it's awesome back here. And uh, I think we can learn from the universal church in this regard. I mean, Glenn and I sat in a worship service 10, 15 years ago in northern China. And they don't worship like we do. But it was an, it was an incredible experience. I, I think Glenn would agree the presence of the Lord is very much there. It wasn't my culture. It wasn't my expression. But it was very much there. When I preached in Spanish Pentecostal church in Mexico, it's very different. So we're just stretching ourselves a little bit. All right. And uh, this, this kind of thing is actually the conversation I want you to have. I kind of want you all to go away feeling a little uncomfortable. Okay. You guys feeling uncomfortable yet? Okay, my job's not done. Let's get uncomfortable. All right. Um, Job 1, 20. So Job has this catastrophic event in his life. And then Job arose, and he tears his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. So here we have a form, shaven head, tearing of the robes, he's on the ground again. Now, this is why an example, maybe a kind of a more obvious example where I'm not saying it's prescriptive, but you could do this. You know, if you're broken before the Lord and you decide to shave your head, it's not like it's unbiblical. But I don't even know of any Christian in the modern era that's ever done that. So we're not prescribing these things but we're giving people the latitude and opportunity to do them because they're, they are biblical expressions of something that's been going on in the heart and life of somebody. Uh, Psalm 29.3, kind of circling back around. 29.2. Well, we could just go 29.1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So again, we just have that emphasis, ascribe, what are we ascribing? Glory, strength, the glory that is due him, his name, the splendor of his holiness. These are the kind of things we want to ascribe to the Lord. And I would also just advise this, if... If you are truly, so just track with me on this. If you are truly doing this, like you're truly at a point when you are ascribing glory and honor to the Lord, and you're not inhibited, your body will reflect that. You don't have to overthink it. You don't have to try to learn, okay, what am I supposed to do right now? Oh, this is where we all put our hands up. Oh, this is where we all bow. Oh, this is where we all close our eyes and don't look around. You have to overthink that stuff. So you're at a point where you're so in love with the Lord that it's, it's just expressing itself with your body. So if this is a helpful illustration, just think about a love relationship with somebody else. So you're in love and you're expressing that. And it's, it's not just, hey, I love you, I've got to go to work. But there's some, something's going on in the relationship, and you're like feeling it. And something good is happening. And you're like, I just want to let you know I love you. 
chances are you're going to say that differently with different gestures and body language than if you're just, love you, jumping in the car to go to work. It's, so you can say something on a surfacey level, which is true, but there's times when you're going to say it in a deeper, more profound level. It might be the same words, but there's like a, a more heart in it. So I could say, hey, I believe God is holy. Hey, Lord, if you're listening, I just want you to let you know I think you're holy. But then there's other times that I'm, I'm so in that, and I don't like to use this word, but I'm so in that zone, or I'm so enraptured with God's glory that I'm giving expression to it by bowing or having my hands in the air to the Lord. Not trying to overthink it or learn what's called the cultural cues as to what's going on. Right? Does that make sense? So Psalm, we're going to do some Psalms here. Let's <laughs> Psalm 95. Six. So this would be this would be an example of if we were using this as a song, we would probably I'd have to look at it all, but we would probably put this in a one or maybe a two spot in a worship order because there's an invitational element to it. So back at the beginning, it's like, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Right now, you're not talking to God. You're talking to each other. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make joyful noise. And now we're starting to look upward. For the Lord is a great God, a king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed it. And then back to more of the invitational gathering words. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So we have there uh, not only invitational language, so we invite people to worship. Sometimes we've got to remind each other to worship. Hey, you guys worshiping? Let's worship. Well, we're here to worship, aren't we? Yeah, but you're not worshiping. Let's worship. So there's an invita- it's appropriate to invite people to worship. And then we kneel uh, or bow. Uh, as we worship. So those are also appropriate uh, expressions. And then just one psalm over Psalm 96.1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. What, okay, let's talk about this. What does it, the Bible mean when it says multiple places, sing to the Lord a new song? Please don't say we're supposed to just sing new music. Okay? <laughs> that one's off the table. But what is what does it mean to sing a new song? Okay, that's okay. Yeah. Okay, fresh encounters. Give to give fresh expression to our faith, our our worship. Yeah. What else? Right on. So it's giving fresh expression, but a new song more accurately is declaring through song what God has done or is doing. So look at the psalm then. So bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. So the, it's giving fresh expression, but it's not just, oh, give fresh stylistic expression to your musical repertoire. It's, it's, that's a very shallow understanding. 
It's more like if God is working in your life, you're going to want to express that through song to other people. And this is the whole idea of a new song. It's, it's, it's testifying to an encounter. It's telling people what the Lord has done. It's more in the one, two, three category. Again, if we were to use that in worship, it's kind of like, hey, I'm, I just want to brag on God for a little bit. Here's a song I wrote, right? Yeah. Okay. 96.9, look down a little bit further. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Have you ever had this encounter, experience in worship? So this is another manifestation of your body, which will at times come from a, an encounter like Isaiah had with the holiness of God. It's like, oh man, Ooh. you're kind of like almost momentarily afraid. Uh, in, a, in a deeply reverential way about who God is. You've been reminded of how holy he is, and you're just kind of quaking. Not in a, like you're afraid he's going to damn you or wipe you out, but you're just so impressed by how awesome he is. It's like, I would like you to come up and give a speech in front of 10,000 people. You don't give it because you think people are going to throw, you don't get scared because you're going to, people are going to throw rotten tomatoes at you, but you're so kind of overwhelmed at the awe being asked to do that. It's uh, that kind of thing. And then we have uh, 99.5. Okay, this is the one I referenced earlier. Would someone read this? Just look at that middle phrase there. So we're exalting the Lord our God, and then we're worshiping at his footstool. So kind of visualize that in your mind. I know God is not defined spatially, but picture God on a huge throne. And he's got his feet on a little footstool. And you are so small, and this image here, you're not worshiping at the throne, you're down at the footstool. Right? Kind of gives you some perspective on the, the humility that's part of worshiping the Lord. And you're somehow, even though you're down at the footstool, what are you doing? You're exalting him. You're not, oh, why do I have to stay down here at the footstool? Can I come sit up on your lap? You're at the footstool, but you are enjoying being at the footstool because you're so much overwhelmed with how awesome he is. Yeah. I guess think about it as a footstool, but through scripture, how it's like you to serve and wash each other's feet. It's not exactly a glamorous place to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good, Jordan. That's a good insight. Jordan just mentioned the idea of serving. By washing someone's feet, it's not a glamorous place to be, but it's kind of the right place to be. And there's something that feels good about being there. All right, let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah 19, 21.
Okay. This is a, like a, the whole passage is, is um, about God's desire to redeem the nations. I'm going to give you some more of those in a bit. Here we have the Egyptians in the radar. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. The Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offerings. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Now each of these things, sacrifice, offering, and vows, are appropriate forms of worship that we see reflected in the worship of all of Israel. So uh, the one I want to kind of draw out here, because the other ones we've kind of already focused in on, is the idea of making a vow. Now there's, a little, there's different kinds of vows that people could make under the Old Covenant, but we'll just kind of go with the broadest one. The idea of making a promise, making a declaration, making a recommitment, that kind of thing. You've heard the word of God preach. You worship the Lord. You're like, I'm going to do this differently this week. I'm going to think differently this week. I'm going to respond differently this week. That's part of worship. So when you're sitting in a worship service and you're convicted or encouraged to do something different or think differently or change an attitude, and you make that mental vow to the Lord, Lord, by your grace, I am going to go forgive that person. By your grace, I'm going to stretch myself in worship. By your grace, I'm going to set aside this sin that, this sin that besets me. That is an act of worship. It's like a vow you're making to the Lord as a result of encountering the Lord. This is going to be reflected in those God is bringing from afar. It's reflected in the lives of the people of God. Uh, one passage I didn't write down, but if I can recall it from memory here, I think it's Ecclesiastes 4. Let me just see if I get the right one. Um, comes to mind. This is the one, guard your steps when you enter the house of the Lord. Don't offer. I think there's something here about vows. Okay. Yeah, verse 1. So guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing. Do not be rash with your mouth or hasty with your heart. To utter a word before the Lord, for God is in heaven, you are on earth, let your words be few. Uh, and then in verse 4, when you vow a vow to the Lord, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Hey, uh, and then it goes on, it's better to not make the vow than to pay it, not make it and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your voice? Hey, you know what? This... To Sam, and to those of you that are thinking about this, this is actually a great passage to reflect upon when you're talking about motive. Just whatever you're going to say, do. Make sure it's genuine. Like don't, if you're going to stand, stick still, it better be genuine. If you're going to raise your hands, it better be genuine. And maybe don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether the guy next to you is genuine or not. You know, let, let me worry about that, or the worship leaders worry about that. But when you go, draw near to, there's just this idea of a sacred approach going on there. I think I, I, think I preached this like 20 years ago or something, and uh, just kind of really appreciated it. All right. Uh, so, in a Catholic uh, service, they have kneeling and standing and sitting. Yep. I never understood, you know, well, those aren't, those aren't bad forms. But I would, uh, I would just follow. That was it. You know, like, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. 
And, you know, I'm not opposed to someone following a particular routine as a way of kind of learn. Because, again, we're learning how to worship. We are learning how to worship. We do learn from each other. I have no problem with that. Uh, but we want to get to a point where it's driven by a heart attitude. Okay, we learn to give. We learn to speak English. We learn to preach. I mean, I, I preach. Part of it is a spiritual gift, but a lot of it is learned behavior. We learn how to serve each, each other. We learn how to give expression to forgiveness. We learn how to love. We learn how to worship. Here we have uh, Jeremiah 7, verse 2. We're going to look at two passages in Isaiah. Or Jeremiah, sorry. Jeremiah 7, 2. Uh, why don't we have somebody look up, find your way to Jeremiah 26. Just be ready for that one, okay? Jeremiah 26. I'll, I'll do Jeremiah 7, 2. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. And then the, the content of the sermon comes after that. Uh, 26, 1 to 3. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. Okay, what do we got going there? Boldness. Boldness in what? Proclamation, right? So this whole idea of unashamed, uh, sorry, unapologetic preaching, it's very biblical. The creature doesn't apologize to the other creature for what the creator has said. Never forget that. The creature does not apologize to another creature for what the creator has said. We boldly proclaim the whole counsel of God's word. And both of these, 20 chapters apart, are examples of Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah being challenged by God to boldly proclaim his word in the context of worship. Right? So the word of God is proclaimed in worship. I was in Toronto uh, last night and this morning. I got back around 4. And um, I don't know if you've heard of the Gospel Coalition or not, but... It's a group of, it's kind of trans-denominational. Maybe I shouldn't use the word trans. <laughs> Multi-denominational. Uh, kind of a bad word now. <laughs> and, um, you know, guys are commenting from different groups how a lot of the denominations they're in, they're like the minority. They're really struggling. They're in a denomination. The denomination does not believe in the authority of God's word. You know, guys in the BCOQ, there's obviously the meeting house doesn't. We got, so we've got the BCOQ, there's challenges to the authority of God's word, the meeting house, the Presbyterian Church of Canada. You can go down the list. There's so many groups. Uh, Missionary Alliance, I was talking to a Missionary Alliance pastor, I just can't handle it any longer. Like, there's so many groups that are kind of downplaying the authority of God's word. And there's a whole, it's all very sophisticated talk. But at the end of the day, it's a downplaying or denial of the authority of God's word. Fortunately, we're not in a group that that's a problem, but it could happen. But there's a lot of guys in 
denominations or fellowships where the authority of God's word is really not championed. It's not valued. It's not proclaimed. And it's a real struggle for them. And it's just a great reminder for us that the authority of God's word must be preached in the church or we're not, in fact, a worshiping church. Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 14. This, I think, is really cool, by the way. We're going to learn something about worship, but you're going to also <clears throat> learn something that you can use if you are in the habit of having conversations with uh, Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons who don't believe in the deity of Christ. So if, you're, if you interact with people, they're like, well, I believe in Jesus, but he's not God. And you can go to the classic text, uh, Thomas said, my Lord and my God, or Colossians chapter 1, where he's declared to be the eternal God. But this is another interesting insight that you can use to help people see that the New Testament very clearly portrays Jesus as divine. So we have Matthew 14, 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, notice the word, they worshipped Jesus, saying, truly you are the Son of God. So here's what I want you to write down in relationship to worship. In worship, we declare Jesus' identity. In worship, we declare Jesus' identity. What they're doing here is uh, declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. So that's an act of worship. They're worshiping him, saying, hey, you're the Son of God. So we lift high the name of Jesus and worship, and our worship, we're like, Jesus is great, Jesus is holy, Jesus is the Son of God. God is holy. We worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but here it's focusing on Jesus. So part of worship is declaring to God, other people are listening in, what we believe to be true about God. So worship has a declarative dimension to it. But I just can't resist also pointing out that this is an example of people worshiping Jesus. Now, does the next verse say, did, does Jesus say anywhere here, oh, don't do that. He doesn't, does he? But let me give you a couple examples of that'll helpful. That'll be helpful for you in seeing how this plays out in a couple other contexts. So first of all, go to go to Luke chapter four, verse eight. Jesus is being tempted by Satan, and in verse eight, Jesus answers him and says, "By the way, look at verse seven. It's so ridiculous." This is such a ridiculous statement. Satan says, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Like, give me a break. Right? It's just ridiculous. So Jesus answers him, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So here's what we have. We have Jesus with his own mouth saying, the only one that should be worshipped is God. But in the previous text, Jesus permits himself to be worshipped. Did I not say something? Think about this now. Acts 10, verse 25. Maybe he was just being nice. Maybe that's what preachers did. Maybe they just allowed people to bow down and pay homage to them or something like that. Well, we're going to discover that's not the case. Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26. Cornelius is converted. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him fell down on his face and worshipped him. Okay, so he's doing the exact same thing to Peter that Peter and the disciples did to Jesus. 
But what's the next verse say? Don't do that. Peter says, uh, stand up, I too am a man. Well, maybe Jesus was just an angel. You talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is just kind of like an, he's the, the uh, what do they call him? Michael the Archangel. So maybe the Peter example doesn't apply. Maybe it's just angels that are allowed to be worshipped. Okay, well, let's go to Revelation 22. Verse 8 and 9. So this is John, right? John worshipped Jesus. John knew what Jesus said about not worshipping anybody but God. But this is what John does. He's enraptured. He's overwhelmed by what's going on. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So this is, this is great stuff. Jesus allows himself to be worshipped. He subsequently declares you can only worship God. Peter's worshipped by someone, and he says, don't do it. One of the apostles tries to worship an angel. The worship, angel's like, don't worship me, just worship God. What does that say about Jesus' identity? Jesus is declaring himself, even without saying it, to be God by allowing himself to be worshipped. And by the way, this is not the only example in the Gospels. You can do a whole study on the worship of Jesus in the Gospels. It happens time and time again, and he permits it. Because in his identity... He's slowly starting to let people in on the secret of actually God. Right? So we have another example of this. Let's go to Matthew 28, 9. So this is post-resurrection. Last chapter of Matthew. Jesus has gone out to uh, meet his... Matthew 28, 9. He's gone out to meet his disciples... And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So again, they're worshipping Jesus. And they're doing it by getting in a low position. It's kind of like the footstool, the bowing low, the face to the ground. This time they, they got hold of his feet. They're up close and personal. And they're worshipping the Lord. So in worship, with the heart, with the body, with the mind, we always need to kind of be humbling ourselves um, beneath God's sovereign rule. So, uh, you know, I, I worship with you in song, so i got to make sure I'm humbling myself before the Lord. Um, I'm proclaiming God's word. It's a sacred and honorable act, but i got to make sure I'm humble before the Lord. I don't want to draw attention to myself. Why is it so easy? And you can share from personal experience if you like. Why is it so easy to to take an act which is supposed to be kind of the ultimate act of humility and make it into an act of pride. So you're preaching, you're worshiping, you're giving, you're serving, you're a worship leader, you're greeting people at the door, whatever. You're an elder, you've been appointed to a lofty office. Why is it so easy to take that which is supposed to be an act of humility and turn it into an act of pride? 
took a pint. I was, you know, meeting for many years. And I took a pint of when somebody new came to the church, I had to shake his hand and introduce myself and talk okay. to him. And to me that was a ministry to me. Okay. And uh, that was my meaning. But uh, you know, I was never the pride was to make sure that person got greeted. Okay. Okay. Others of you that serve, how do you guard yourself against pride when you're doing something that could draw attention to yourself or could make you feel good about yourself? Really, really good accountability. I, mm. I know, and I'll give Jay a shout out. Jay, Pastor Jay, is a really good uh, worship pastor for our worship team. Because he, in his devotionals and our prayers before okay. our worship team, kind of really takes the focus. Like you almost, we. He says it, or someone will say it every single week. This is not about us. This mm. is for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. So, like, a constant reminder. <coughs> I probably have heard that safe statement heard said, like, 10,000 times in my time on worship teams. But, like, as a worship leader, you have to hear it, especially as a musician. Because a musician always, the, the musician attitude is, I'm really good at my instrument. Mm. Look at me. Look how good I am at this instrument. Right. So that constant reminder of, like, yes, you're good at your instrument, but this is for you right now. This is for the give God glory and to lead your congregation in worship. Good, good. Joe? For me, I always think of it as something that I'm not gaining any merit by doing this. So whatever service I'm doing, it's not so that I can point to Okay, good. Mitch? arrogance and a low self-esteem are both symptoms of pride. They both are. And, and why is what we call a low self-esteem a symptom of pride? You're thinking about yourself and you are in the moment not believing what God has said to be true. So you know more than God about you. That's pride. So it ma- it's manifesting itself in different ways, but it's the same thing. Okay. Um, Here's a couple of other things to think about. So are we responsible to rescue each other from pride by not encouraging or complimenting each other? No. So what are some things that will kind of help us to understand the dynamics of encouragement and complimenting each other in the life of church? What, how do we make that redemptive and not something that's kind of Gross or pride-inducing. We want to build each other up. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's 
So what do we, when we build each other up, what do you mean by that? What are we doing when we build each other up? Reminding them of who their identity is mm -hmm. and not of, like, we give of our talents, but our identity is not found in our talents. It's the, the ones who gave us our yeah. talents. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm hearing there, too, is this idea that if I say, Jordan, you have done a really good job, and then I fill in the blank. What I'm really doing is I am bearing witness to God's work in your life. And that encourages you and it encourages me. So there's always like the, the vertical dimension to the compliment. And, and in that sense, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing to do. I mean, God's called us to encourage each other. And, okay, someone else had their hand up. Okay, Dave? Good. It's good. In, in a worship service, it's, it's not rich. You were playing, playing the bass like uh, really well. But if you're like, God was really manifesting His presence after, like during that worship service, mm -hmm. like, I really appreciate your service in that. Yeah. Um, that's encouraging, but it's not focusing on the person. It's focusing on on God in in whatever service it is. Yeah. Here's a couple biblical, um, you can look up the references, but you know the Bible talks about I'm being poured out. So when you're serving the Lord, you're pouring out, and people acknowledge that you're pouring out, so they appreciate the fact that you're pouring it out. But pouring it out is not, the, the idea of being poured out before the Lord is different than trying to get something as a result of your service. So people acknowledge that, I appreciate you being poured out before the Lord. I also like Paul's, let me just give this other one. I, I like, I love Paul's, um, is that like 2 Corinthians 12, 14, or it might be 1 Corinthians 12, 14, but it's there about, in my weakness you are strong. That idea. And maybe you've had these experiences. I, I think it's hilarious. I, I can't tell you how many times I've preached a sermon or taught something and I'm, Afterward, you know, you have your time of evaluation. Did, did that go well? Did I articulate well? That that was not a good one. No, it's kind of embarrassing. Almost without exception, that's when the yeah, that was really good. I was so impacted by my life. that was terrible. Oh, you wouldn't believe how the Lord was moving in my life. I'm like, really? So I just—it's a total example of in my weakness, He is strong. And then other times, you're prideful. I really. Hit the ball out of the park, man. That was a good one. I had it all down. Then no one says anything. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't. I don't say anything. Right? So, what's that? Yeah. So, you don't aim for that. I'm going to aim for a terrible one every week, right? No. I mean, you... you <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. Yeah. Thank you. Nancy says it's good. Yeah. Never, never fails. I love it. So, yeah. You have a speaker or something like that, and he does his speaking or things like that, and nobody acknowledged what he said or criticized him or yeah. uh, complimented him and things like that. He doesn't know how to correct himself. Exactly. So part of encouragement and rebuke or correction or training is affirming giftedness 
and shaping our talents. So we need that. And it's not, it's not, okay, so there's a spiritual dimension to preaching. Let's use preaching. That's what I do. I know, I know preaching. So there's a spiritual dimension to preaching, but there's also a rhetorical dimension to preaching. I have to learn the English language. I have to know a sufficient number of verbs, nouns, adjectives, part of participles to speak full sentences. I have to think about the dynamics of the church I'm in, the spiritual maturity, the age groups. I have to be thinking about that. I'm not just going to sit in my office lazy all week and God is just going to show up and I'm just like a robot, right? So you got to, there's things you learn. You got to structure it out. And you, part of that you learn from like your impressions from the spirit as he affirms that something happened there that was good or maybe kind of convicts you you didn't do what you should do. But a lot of it is, are people dozing off? Are they falling asleep? Are they walking away? Are people attentive? Are they rolling their eyes? Um, and then the spiritual side, over time, has fruit been born? So people be like, oh, you didn't, you didn't handle that one well, or that one was really good. So that reinforces, okay, I'll do that again, or I won't do that again. Right? So we, we need that feedback. Same with the musicians. You need some feedback. And that helps to shape, shape uh, your understanding of how you function. And, I, you know, the Bible talks about encouragement being a gift. I really believe that because um, there's a lot of people in the church that, I mean, I can only speak for myself. And please don't under, misunderstand, I'm not fishing for compliments. Not at all. But I'll use myself as an example because I only know my world. There's a lot of people in the church that I know right well, very much appreciate my ministry. But they've never said it. Not on a single occasion. There's really only about 10, 15 people in the church that ever compliment you on a regular basis. The rest you just kind of have to assume it. So think about your life. So we're in a church of several hundred people. How many people in this church compliment or encourage you. I bet you it's just a handful. But you don't, you're not really conscious of that because you think, well, there's a, there's, I know a lot of people, are, but some are gifted at it. Others, you will literally pass them for 20 years, you'll never hear an encouraging word. You won't hear discouragement, but they'll never say a word. Other people will tell you. So your feedback is actually coming from a very small nucleus of people. My feedback comes in this church from about 10 or 20 people, probably max. I've never counted them, but I'm thinking probably 10 or 20 you get feedback from. The other 580, they never say a word. And so on your level, you gotta, kind of got to be aware of that as well. If you're serving the Lord, don't get all worked <laughs> up that hundreds of people never say anything. It's probably not their spiritual gift. They're off encouraging somebody else, right? And that's fine too. Because I don't encourage all of you. Some of you have probably sat under my pastoral leadership for years and you've never actually heard me come up to you personally and say, hey, I really appreciate this about you. doesn't mean I don't appreciate it. So, Susie, you were going to comment? I was going to say, um, oh, so we're not responsible for other people's responses. Yeah. God has called us to encourage one another. For sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important. God tells us to Yes, I don't, yeah, that's, let people encourage you is what you're saying. 
And by the way, some people encourage you with their presence. Maybe not their words. Other people with gifts or remembering, I don't know, your anniversary or something. So if we, if we think about the nonverbals, there's a lot of other people that encourage in different ways. And I've said this before. Just, this is just a social skill. You know, what, you know what I'm going to say? When you're encouraging someone, don't ever say. What don't you say when you're encouraging someone? Okay, let's say this out loud. I will never start to encourage someone by saying, don't let this go to your head, but. <laughs> anyway, you've all done it, right? It's Okay, I'm gonna, let's look at a couple more. We're going to look at three more passages and then we'll be done. This is all under expression of worship. So uh, Luke 2, 37. And then as a widow until she was 80, this is the prophetess Anna, uh, she did not depart, 237, from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Fasting and prayer. You got two more in the mix, fasting and prayer. Acts 13, 2. When they were worshiping the Lord, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and so forth. So there, and then again in verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands. So you've heard, if you've been here for a while, I've preached like six or seven sermons. I actually have a book I wrote on fasting. I've just never published it because I'm not really sure there's a, a readership out there. I have a lot of books I could publish if I knew people would read them. But I have a book on fasting. It's, it looks at the six different reasons in Scripture for fasting. And uh, primarily, fasting is kind of like, I don't want to be a dualist, but it's kind of like disciplining your body, using your spirit to discipline your body because your body loves to be in control, basically. And so you withhold something from your body that your body wants because you want it, your body to remind be reminded by your spirit that it's not in charge. So it's a spiritual discipline. There's other reasons for it, but that's one of them. And it's part of worship. So we fast and we pray as an act of worship. But it's something that can so easily just kind of go by the wayside. Can you repeat the first sentence? Fasting is kind of like discipline your body? Yeah, so uh, fasting is disciplining your body um, because yeah, because your body wants to be in control. So your spirit is basically telling your body by with, withholding from it something that it wants that it's not in charge. So it's almost like your body's sitting on this stool, your spirit's on this stool, and your body's misbehaving. It's lusting, it's gluttony, it's whatever, rage, anger. And it's fed by food primarily. Or in 1 Corinthians 7, by sex. So you're like, you're not getting food, you're not getting sex. We're going to fast you from that for a while until you kind of shut up. Well, I don't like it. It starts to push back. No, you'll be quiet. And so you weaken it to remind your body that it doesn't control your life. That's kind of the idea there. So fasting, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's one of the... So if you ever study spiritual disciplines... 
Some of them we put under a topic called disciplines of abstinence. And what we mean by that, some of the disciplines we were adding things to our lives, some of them were subtracting. So disciplines of abstinence include fasting, solitude, giving, might be another one. But all three of those disciplines, you're giving something away or giving something up. But other disciplines, you're taking something on. Prayer, Bible study, service, you're adding. Does that make sense? So you discipline yourself by subtracting at times. You discipline yourself by adding. And the discipline of fasting falls under the disciplines of absence. You're, with, you're taking something away, in this case from your body, to remind it who really is in charge. Because we're still, it's like the, the flesh is doing battle with the spirit. Part of worship. And then one more, Acts 4.12, sorry, Revelation 4.12. yeah. Oh, yeah, you have a different version. You have a different version than me. Yeah, so let me see here. Uh, 4.10. No, you were fast, Kenny. You were fast. You get there quick. Oh, that's electronic. That's don't let that go to your head. Yeah. I thought we vowed a vow. Yeah. Yeah. Sarcasm So this is a little picture now into heaven. So I'm interested in what heaven's going to be like. I don't want to just learn from the Old and New Testament. I want to learn age. I want to learn from what the heavenly ideal is going to be. And this kind of gives us that window. So the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. The same words, right, coming up in some of the texts. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So they have a, like positions of uh, authority by virtue of the fact that they're wearing crowns, but they're giving those crowns up to the Lord as an act of worship. So giving away authority that's been bestowed upon you by God, giving back gifts that you've been given by God, those are also acts of worship. So we're not, don't think of giving this way. I'm giving something that's mine to God. No. I'm giving something that God has given to me back to God. That's different. It's radically different, in fact. And this is an example that this, the blessing of the crown is being given back to God. So when, and I know we fight this in our humanness, but when we think of heavenly rewards as well, where we want to move from is this notion that, okay, I got my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. I have a relationship with God. I'm going to do a whole bunch of stuff and I'm going to get rewarded for it. We've got to move away from that, because that's still about me. We have to move into this place where God has rescued me from damnation. That's a demonstration of his justice and his holiness combined. And we want to glorify him for being just and simultaneously holy. God is calling me into his eternal presence so that I might worship him. I'm not focused on what I get. 
I need to be focused on what he is going to receive, exaltation, my declarations that you're glorious, you're awesome, you're holy, as a result of the fact that he's redeemed me. So again, I know in our humanness we fight this, because, and I can preach it, but I know like a lot of what I do is for me. But if I think it's supposed to be about me, then I can't change. But if I realize it's not, even my salvation's not about me, it's to give greater glory to God, then I can start to progress in the direction of doing that and acknowledging that in my worship. We as evangelicals are pretty clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and that works are merely an expression of that. We know that theologically. We know that with our minds. We believe that to be true, but we still act like Roman Catholics who believe that it's the merits that they bring into the mix that enables them to inherit eternal life. We still act like Muslims. We still act like Hindus. And that on an attitudinal level, we think, well, if I just serve the Lord faithfully, I'm going to shore up my chances. And that's that's still a selfish motive. And the gospel can be preached that way too, that, uh, you know, the reason why you should trust in Jesus is because you want to escape the fires of hell. Well, that's a true statement that you will escape the fires of hell by trusting in Jesus. But you need to kind of add the next part to that so that you might give God glory for all of eternity for that. Well, that's the fullness of the gospel preach. It's that vertical, not that horizontal focus. Um, yeah, so, so those are formed. That's a lot, right? I mean, we haven't even looked at them all, but those are uh, forms and expressions of worship. They need to be understood, obviously, to be of any benefit. A hard attitude, the, the reason that you need to understand them, just, you just practice the forms. But the forms also shape the spirit. And they give expressions to the spirit. So it's kind of a, it's a fragile dance there. So ne- what, I, what I would like for you to do for homework, and, and I would encourage you to do this like in the next 24 hours if you can, just write out a definition of worship based upon the passages we've looked at, a definition of worship. We'll kind of tweak that a little bit because we're going to look at some places of worship, prerequisite warnings. This won't take too long. But write out a definition of worship. Like, what is worship? Just kind of play with the words, try to get something down that's, that makes sense and kind of capture some of these thoughts we've looked at. And then um, we're going to also encourage you to do a little evaluation of the attitudes that you bring to worship and the way you express yourself in worship. Okay? This, by the way, applies to both your personal private worship and your corporate worship. So, All right, so we're done. Thanks for coming. Hope this has been good. So next week's our last class, so don't miss it.